0: welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas you elevator pitch artists build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes dreamers and doers join us in the foxhole in the arena of life this is the grand plaster podcast a show about innovators entrepreneurs and leaders and the origin stories that made them who they are today friends. Graham Plaster here with Adam Hesch. What's going on, Adam? Hey, Graham. What's going on? So I've known Adam for a few years uh, through the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum and some of the other groups we've overlapped in. And I'm really excited to have you here, Adam, because I know that like a lot of other entrepreneurial people, you've had a lot of twists and turns to your story. So I want to pull the thread on some of those. Tell me about where you grew up. What was your family life like? And how did you end up in the military?
1: Sure, Uh, grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, Family life, really little relation to the military. Had a great uncle who was a fighter pilot in World War II and another uncle who was a dentist. Um, I knew I needed college paid for. I've always been sort of like uh, mission oriented, sort of a typical millennial, so to speak. And I was at the barbershop one day reading a magazine and saw a picture of the the Herndon ceremony. And for your listeners who aren't familiar, it's uh, sort of a rite of passage for your first year at the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, There's a tall granite obelisk uh, monument, I don't know, 20, 30 feet tall. They cover it in Greece. And as a class, you have to work together to make a human tower to climb over it. And saw this article and was like, this place looks weird, but interesting. And really, that was it. Um, Went to uh, to the Naval Academy. uh, How
0: old were you when you saw that?
1: Uh, that was probably, it was pretty close to the application deadline. After I saw that, I knew I had to get cracking. So I think it was my junior year. Okay.
0: Interesting. All right. So you went to the ABLE Academy and what year was that?
1: Yeah. Started in 2004. So fall of 2004, graduated May of 2008.
0: And, uh, what did you major in?
1: Uh, major was in history, which I, which I had no interest in, um, I started out in engineering. I fell hook, line, and sinker for the pressure to do an engineering degree, did systems engineering, and was beyond miserable. I mean, it was bad. And so then I thought, uh, well, I need like an all-purpose degree that I could use in global affairs. History was my choice. If I could do it all over again, I would have done computer science. Um, I did some coding in high school and really enjoyed it. But it's hard to figure out what you want and what you're after. And so I'm no no historian nowadays. But uh, it got me through, and somehow I graduated.
0: Yeah, I was an English major there. And it definitely got me through. I don't regret that at all. I might have taken some different classes, but uh, it definitely got me through, I would say.
1: Yeah, I really hate the pressure they put on you. I'd tell any new midshipman like, ignore the administration. If you get accepted, you pick a degree that you're going to have a blast doing, and the rest will figure itself out. Right,
0: right. But, I mean, to be fair, for those who are listening and don't know about the service academies, and I can speak most specifically to the Naval Academy, it is a bachelor of science degree, and you can laugh all you want at getting a BS in English, but the fact of the <laughs> matter is, um, it's a, it's a science degree. So uh, I would say that those who go through um, the service academies get a pretty decent, broad grounding in uh, um, you know, the sciences, no matter what major you get. And I know that anybody who is a major in you know systems engineering or whatever would push back on that, but that's I'm, that's my line. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Sounds right. Okay. Did you did you grow up with any siblings? Uh,
1: three brothers, yeah. Okay. Uh, oldest is a uh, Mercedes-Benz technician. Second oldest uh, works here in Albuquerque at, um, at the base, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. Well, I guess it's co-located with Sandia National Labs where they're like right next to each other. He does uh, 3D modeling, basically, to find, designs video game layouts for the government. So he's got a really, really cool job. Twin brother works in uh, data analytics at a company called Firebolt. If you've heard of Snowflake, they're a competitor of Snowflake. Are you guys, uh,
0: are you identical? Or fraternal?
1: Yeah, identical. Yeah, we very much have lived vicariously through each other in our very different life paths.
0: And you grow the mustache so you could differentiate?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Naval Academy, 04, uh, history major. Where'd you go from there?
1: Yeah, started out, uh, I'll I'll cut to the chase. First career didn't work out, Um, was selected for EOD, ended up failing out, which was a little bit rough to make an understatement. Started my career, though, at the Defense Language Institute. Um, At the time, uh, they had a two-year backlog because you used to have to do one tour as a surface warfare officer before you went to the EOD pipeline, but because of the war, they cut out that requirement, which meant that everybody promised a slot who was already on a ship, still had to backfill school. So they were like, crap, how do we manage this influx, this two-year surplus? So um, for a while, and I think to this day, I could be wrong, they sent folks to language school in Monterey. So uh, not a bad tour of duty as a new ensign, uh, enjoying the California life, learning a language. Then went through dive school in uh, Florida, um, got to go when I was a midshipman. So it was my second time through, which <laughs> was interesting. Got to go, uh, when I was a mid, got to go to Hawaii for the school course, then started the EOD pipeline and just struggled, man. I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was, uh, air ordnance division, learning about missiles and bombs off aircraft and ejection seats and, um, just kept failing tests and academic, a trite. And that was a pretty rough blow to the ego, but, uh, you know, I didn't want to get out. I could have left if I, if I wanted to, um, appealed the what they call a poker board for any Navy folks in your audience, probationary officer, continuation, redesignation board. Basically they say, thanks for playing. You can leave now, or you can appeal. And so I appealed and said, no, let me go SWO. And I promised myself I'd never go SWO at the Naval Academy. And then lo and behold, life has a funny way of things turning out, you know, where you don't think you're going to land. So showed up day one, complete new guy as a JG. Um, so that was a little, that was rough too, to kind of build from scratch alongside of no, the those, second term. For those you don't
0: know what, uh, SWO or EOD is, can you just unpack both those terms?
1: Yeah, SWO is what you think of probably for a standard run-of-the-mill vanilla Navy officer. You go to a ship, um, you train as a generalist, you learn a little bit about everything, including engineering, operations, um, what they call deck, which is anything involving line handling or the anchor, um. I think I said weapons. Uh, You do a little bit of everything. Part of your job is in a watch rotation where you're actually driving and operating it. And then the other part of your job would be the equivalent of a civilian nine to five, where you have a bit of a focus area. You're in a leadership position where you're sort of the figurehead for what you call a division. You're not, you're not exactly in the weeds. It's analogous to white collar leadership where you Provide overall management and oversight for your division of of technical experts who are working on equipment, operating equipment every day. EOD is uh, the military's equivalent of the bomb squad. You're basically responsible for rendering safe any kind of explosive hazard that you can think of.
0: And how, how long were you uh, surface warfare officer?
1: So I did uh, I did the you know the, the colloquialism is five and dive. I did the minimum two tours. Um, was very grateful to have served, um, had a weird deployment schedule, thankfully never had to do, I had very short deployments and I say, thankfully, in some sense, there's a bit of a stigma there. Like, Oh, did you really put in your time? It's like, I don't know, man, I don't like to play that game. I got plenty of sea time just doing training and comp two X and all that first ship was actually a joint deployment with the coast guard. And we had some river on boats on board the USS Oak Hill. So we were an LSD with the coast guard and some river on units doing drug interdiction operations off the coast of Central America. So that was extremely interesting. Yep. And then second ship was Kearsarge and LHD. Uh, looks like a carrier to civilians. There's no jets. There's no uh, catapult, so it doesn't launch jets, what some people refer to as a helicopter carrier. And there I was the assistant DCA, which leave it to the Navy to give you a job title that makes perfect sense. It literally translates as the assistant damage control assistant. That's related to how the engineering department is structured, but it's such a large ship. You have a large damage control team. So, yeah. you know, firefighting, flooding, hazmat and all that. And then um, I'm very curious. I think life is way too short. I want to experience all that it has to offer. And so I was very grateful to be able to serve, but wanted to get out and try other things.
0: And did you get to use any of the language training along the way?
1: Never used it operationally. There was one day we were out steaming around and there was an uh, Iranian oiler not too far from us. Let's just say they were doing some interesting maneuvers, and heard a little bit of what they were saying on Bridge to Bridge Radio, and they crossed in front of us much closer than they should have. But it, but it was fun. We had a good captain, and he was down to play a little bit of chicken, too, so uh, that was pretty interesting. That was the only day I ever put it to use. Otherwise, it's only been in Persian restaurants having fun talking to the waiters and waitresses.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that brings us through your Navy career, right? You did a two tours as a SWO, and then, and then what did you decide to do next?
1: Yeah, um, I've always been passionate about creativity. It's sort of, creativity is like this ephemeral, hard to nail down trait, but it's always felt core to who I am. And um, I did have, I did find some rare, fun opportunities to put it use in the fleet, but um, boy, the fleet can drain you if you don't feel like you have an adequate creative outlet. So I felt like the tech industry is where I belonged, right or wrong, because by its very nature, tech is creative because you're trying to introduce new value into the world that opens up new opportunities, solves problems, stuff like that. So I got out, um, I call it my sabbatical year, but that implies I had a plan, I really had no plan. Um, Right before I got out at DEF, um, the pitch at DEF 2014, I went to my first DEF was in 2014, the pitch winner-
0: Defense Entrepreneurs Forum.
1: Oh yeah, I'm doing Mm -hmm. the acronym thing again. (laughs) So the guy who won the pitch competition had an extremely compelling pitch for a project called the Syria Airlift Project trying to use drones for a new aid delivery paradigm to end starvation as a weapon of war in Syria. And I was like, man, that's like too important and too cool not to try to find a way to get involved. So uh, that was Mark Jacobson, a good friend to this day. Um, He ended up having a huge impact on my career later on. But my first venture working with him was at the Syria Airlift Project during that year off, trying to work on drones um, in areas where you can't get aid to vulnerable populations via overland travel, whether it's washed out roads from rainstorms or uh, military conflict. Uh, the second thing I did that year was go to the Stanford Ignite program. They have a veterans version to just a crash course in business. Stanford started it because they realized not everybody needs an MBA, but um, you know smart engineers with a good idea with a little bit of an introduction to business can go a lot further than without. So the Ignite program and um, Syria Airlift were I did for that first year off did really kind of basics you know social media marketing fundraising a little bit of pr I got us an article in fast company magazine um did that for a year and then uh like all like most startups ended up failing and crashing and burning a little bit literally that summer we were doing some training flights at Stanford and one of our drones landed in Lake Lagunitas which at the time during a drought was just this huge dry lake bed covered in weeds and you know, we had all the right permissions, we had some fire extinguishers with us, but found ourselves wildly unprepared for this raging fire that we caused at Stanford, almost burning down the university, and then a bunch of fire trucks came and spared some dorm buildings and got it under control, and that was wow. the beginning of the end for us, um, and Mark writes about it in detail in his book, Eating Glass, and it was, uh, even though it was a it was a failure, man, it was a tremendous learning experience, and um, like I said, it shaped my career. I ended up doing other drone carrier stuff. We can go into at DIU and then at DDS, and then uh, after that, I had to find my next gig. So I bought a one-way ticket to Silicon Valley and tried to figure out how I could get a job out there.
0: Okay, a one-way gig. So you arrived in Silicon Valley. What's your what's your uh, game plan when you arrived?
1: <laughs> Man, no game plan. It was like uh, you know, I'm a big believer that sometimes to create your own success, you have to wrangle the forces external to yourself that, that help you to succeed and so I figured if I buy a one-way ticket to San Francisco with with not too much in my checking account I'm going to have to figure it out one way or another so mm-hmm. go to a buddy's house literally sleep on his couch and um I you know I didn't want to get an MBA I didn't want to go to a coding boot camp I just wanted to get started so I begin by just networking extremely aggressively and um What's interesting to me is a lot of veterans who transition and have a hard time finding a job in the civilian world um, miss an important lesson that we do very well, that some units do very well, which is you understand the language of your target audience. Think of civil affairs and Green Berets teams, you know, when they're sitting down with a shake somewhere and having tea, they're learning to speak the local language and, quote, figure out the local norms. Well, the same is true during your transition. If your resume is full of buzzwords, and I'm, here I am using acronyms on this podcast with you, but if you transition and you're using all your military descriptions, it's not going to serve you. So went out there and just learn the basics, man. What's, what's venture capital. What's early stage, late stage. What's B2B. What's B2C. Um, I figured it was probably wise to actually, I'll tell you a funny story. I read a blog post by a venture capitalist who I forget his name now, but he wrote a blog and had a Twitter handle called startup L Jackson, making fun of kind of the startup world in the tone of voice of Samuel L Jackson. And he wrote an article and a paragraph in the article caught my attention. He said, like, the article was how to get rich in Silicon Valley. And it was meant as a joke. His thesis is like, if you want to get rich, become a middle manager at Facebook or Google, work there for 20 years and you'll be plenty rich. If you want to be rich, don't work at a startup because the odds work against you, which is, which is, you know, a really good point. He said, but if you really do want to work at a startup, it's easy. You know, scroll through this list called Angel List, which I had never heard of, you know, pick, you know, pick 50 companies that look interesting interview at 10 of them and then pick your top pick and at first i had this visceral response i was like oh so i just knock on their door and get an interview is that how that works (laughs) you know feeling insecure as a navy veteran like how the hell do i leverage obscure navy stuff in the world of tech but then i was like okay i owe it to this guy to actually make this work and to do my best so i sat there in a co-working space and scrolled through angel list manually built a spreadsheet of 100 different startups that interested me Uh, filtered them by company size, series of funding, mission, what they were working on, filtered down the top 10, got interviews at like five of them by using what I would call advanced networking, just stuff that doesn't come natural to veterans. But how do you add value? How do you get someone to say yes to coffee so on and so forth? Um, Got an interview at a catering startup. I had no idea you could even make a startup around catering. That's a really interesting story about how to monetize curated information. Uh, interviewed at a fintech company, interviewed at a flavor water dispenser company, I actually got an offer from them. And I knew they were going to be a big deal. I could have been an early employee. It wasn't the right fit, but later I ended up getting a job at, at Facebook and their dispenser wasn't all the buildings. So, you know, they landed some fat contract with Facebook.
0: Yeah. And so
1: really it was learning the local language, the local norms of the Valley, so to speak, getting a bunch of interviews and then eventually a, got a job at Facebook. Cause I felt like if I want to plan in the long term for my career, and if I don't want an MBA, I'm kind of at a disadvantage. So having one of the big tech names on my resume, I felt like was the right way to go.
0: So, so you never worked for any of the angel list leads that you cultivated, right?
1: No, no, not at the end of the day. And, I, you know, I'm really glad that I took the approach I did because I learned a lot. Um, and I think I made the right decision for me at the time. Like, you can't really deny the benefits of big tech, um, both for your own career. You know, the, the, the 401k is unbelievable. The health benefits are unbelievable. You see the micro kitchens, especially, especially after having served in the military and you're like, what Willy Wonka world am I in where I can just like go get a handful of free gummy bears, you know, any snack, any drink, you know, espresso machine, I can pull my own, I can make my own latte. And and you're like, what? This is this is so different than wardroom, nasty ass, excuse my French, you know, burnt coffee. And and so for me, the overall benefits and having a brand name on my resume was the right move. So Facebook is where I landed after after all my research and interviews and the Syria Airlift project didn't work out.
0: What was the interview process and work environment like, other than the obviously the food uh, at Facebook? What what were some things that you kind of either learned along the way or would be interesting to other people considering that route?
1: In terms of the interview and how to pass it, yeah, there's that's the first thing. Okay, um, the interview was it was gosh, let me think. It was a four-hour, four-person interview after the initial screening call. I can't remember the four things they screen you for, but it's out there in the open. I think I would just look up their Glassdoor reviews, um, and it, it depends somewhat on each business unit, but they but they all try to. Um, shoot the same kind of person that the of the four things they screen for the one that readily comes to mind which i think is facebook wide or meta wide i should say with their new rebranding is uh, share a time you have created something they're looking for entrepreneurial employees i think it would to use military lingo it would be looking for people who have a mindset of extreme ownership like when have you from a to z from cradle to grave designed, built launched tracked managed venture of your own now it could be financial it could be whatever um the other four i'd really have to sit here and think to remember what they were Um, the lesson that i learned from that uh, from moving out to the valley is the power of informational interviews like every company just like every individual they're shaping their image online and they're never going to give you the full scoop of like what it's actually like or what the interview process is actually like so an informational interview for anybody in your audience who's never heard that is um basically the tables turn, you interview somebody at a company there currently and say like, hey, this is the research I've done. Here's some questions I have for you to learn about the role at the company. The benefit there, which lended itself in my favor is often you stumble across either the hiring manager, if you know the, the role you're targeting, or somebody close to the hiring manager. So that if you then apply and you get an interview, they'll be like, oh, this is Adam. I know this guy. He came in and talked to me a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, great dude. Um, and so you know, it's kind of like there's this phrase in the military, like, I forget the, 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 the exact phrase, but it's something like, you want an unfair fight, meaning you want every advantage at your, at, at your sales. And I think that should absolutely be the case with job interviewing. You owe it to yourself. If you think you have a gift to offer the world give yourself every advantage possible. And so for me, that was uh, learning the art of the informational interview, because I actually spoke to um, my hiring manager during my informational interview. And it's a low pressure environment. It's casual they oftentimes throw out a couple of good nuggets that you just won't find online about how to ace the actual interview, uh, did that and got hired. So that was how the interview process unfolded for me.
0: And why'd you leave Facebook?
1: I left Facebook because Mark Jacobson, who I worked for at the serial of project, uh, called me up and he's like, Hey man, uh, I've got a, a new opportunity." And I kind of knew he was working on this, but like, I didn't know details. He's like, Hey man, I'm building a new team. We're incubated at DIU. We've got complete autonomy basically to build whatever we want. I've got a bunch of smart engineers, but we need someone to help herd the cats. Are you down? We work out of a garage. You make immediate mission impact. You're, you're probably not going to find anywhere cooler. And I was like, you know, <laughs> basically like, yes, <laughs> you know, tell me more. But um, he's one of those people who, you know, if he said, hey, I'm taking a trip to hell, I would say, you know, give me a shotgun. Like such a good dude, such a good leader. Um, you know, if, if he ever starts a company again, I'm going to be knocking on his door and say, hey, for the third time, will you take me back? Um, So that was the, that was the, that's the short version of, uh, of the power of relationships.
0: Mm -hmm. And what was the name of that company or is the name?
1: So that was the coolest. I mean, that, like, if you're interested in, in national security innovation, I couldn't, you couldn't imagine a better outfit. It was a hybrid team of government personnel and direct support contractors uh, developing technical IP that was government owned. So I was, even though I was a contractor, it wasn't kind of a typical contractor outfit. It was a hybrid team. We literally worked out of a garage at DIU off to the side. Um, almost nobody knew, knew of us. Everyone left us alone. Um, there was 15 of us all together. Three people worked remote. The other 12 of us worked in the cages, as they're called. Um, and we built, we were basically a software consulting firm for Special Operations Forces, working with group one and two drones and drone detection systems. Um, And so I held a bunch of roles there. Uh, One of my life's passions is sort of leveraging um, private sector innovation, you know, market-driven innovation, tech-driven innovation, whatever you want to call it, for the government purpose mission. You need that fusion of those two um, because of the perverse incentive structures of the government, it's usually not going to surface the best idea. And so um, I started my role at it was called Rogue Squadron, and we were a small software team. Started out there doing recruiting, um, trying to bring in Silicon Valley engineers, and uh, hired four dudes from out there and uh, built our internet presence exactly the same way you would an early stage startup. Um, I was looking through another sub passion of mine is hacking policy to to break the rules, so to speak. But it's not really breaking the rules if you know the policy and you can quote it verbatim. So I go into the fine print for angel list and I don't see anything about government. So I email them. I'm like, Hey, all your stuff is talking about venture funded, you know, startups, is that I'm like, I'm a government team, but we're still doing, we're still doing modern software development using a lean approach, you know, for a mission oriented outcome. Can I use your platform? And they are like, cool, that sounds rad, like two thumbs up. So I create angel profile. I make it look just like a startup. You know, it looks like a duck, smells like a duck, must be a duck. Um, but the verbiage had, had everything in there. You know, we're a government software development team developing, you know, next generation solutions for troops downrange. Uh, this is your opportunity to make massive outsized impact doing work you'll never be able to do it to do again. And so software development team, we did um, cybersecurity stuff. We did um, an integrated common operating picture for drone detection. We had a, a drone detection sensor, um, did some other stuff. After I recruited a couple more engineers from the Valley, I then moved to doing um briefings and pr stuff and the generals and admirals came through diu we'd always get pulled to brief even though we didn't really we fell under the autonomy portfolio at diu but we were sort of this redheaded stepchild but we had we had some extremely cool success stories and wins from the field so we would always get called to brief our portion of what we did at diu to all the vips coming through then the third job i had was as a product manager for our drone detection sensor we had a bumpy road. We had to leave DIU, and then we um, merged with DDS, the Defense Digital Service. We went through this merger process with them, and it it did not go super great. Um, we lost some talent due to some decisions that were uh, not wise decisions on their part. And you know, I always have this struggle, having come from government. There's this delicate balance when things don't go well. What do you talk about publicly, and how do you frame it? It doesn't do well to sweep things under the rug, but of course there's a need for a certain level of professionalism too. So um, suff- suffice it to say it was, um, there were some things that didn't go great with that merger. We lost some senior level, extremely talented folks. So I had to fill in the gaps as a product manager. And then uh, I got fired.
0: <laughs>
1: um, uh, the, the, the product that I was managing, we were fielding across the interagency. And uh, it really came down to a debate between me and senior leadership. And, you know, when I, I don't, I don't, my approach to innovation and I'm, I can't take credit for this. I heard it from somewhere else. It's the, the peregrine falcon approach. It's like fit in and don't ruffle feathers for a while. And then when you find your target, get laser focused on it and just dive bomb it. Um, That's how, you know, peregrine falcons fly around until they know what they're going to dive bomb on. And so I don't like to ruffle feathers unnecessarily, but when something is important and I've done my research, then I'm not afraid to. And if you look at the, I think the new national defense strategy is not yet on the streets, the unclassified version. But the last one before that was in 2018, and there's paragraphs that make it crystal clear about the need to work across the interagency. And the leadership was very focused on the DoD Rice Bowl. I had sensors in the field with any agency you can think of. We were getting really good data. It was a prototype. Uh, Our partners in these agencies were awesome. I mean, it was the pinnacle of government innovation. And I wasn't willing to let that go because the mission was important, you know, that, you know, the the 2018 NDS said that the homeland is no longer a sanctuary and you have to work across the interagency to, 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 um, you know, look out for our national security posture.
0: Yeah. So you're no longer with that program. You said you got fired. And then how'd you pivot off of that?
1: So I, I, Man, I just feel like my whole career is the product of extremely good luck and really amazing people. So at the time I was getting converted, I got fired like right before signing the paperwork for the conversion to GS. The DDS has changed now, but it used to be um, when you got hired at DDS, it was, it was in its early days, it had a really stellar reputation. And it would hire senior technologists and you'd get hired as a about as senior as you can go in the GS world. So I was a contractor just about to sign the dotted line when I got let go. And so my contract and company, they were like, A, the fact that you got let go from this is bullshit. B, we want to bring you on corporate staff because you did such a good job. We think you can do other work for us. So I went, I stayed with my contract and company. I left the Rogue Squadron slash DDS team, did business development for them and got some contracts with the Air Force. And so I did some kind of more, more kind of vanilla standard government BD stuff behind the scenes sure. um, until jumping over to uh, Verifix.
0: And do you want, you want to talk about, about verifix here, or is that, is that more stealth?
1: No, no, I can jump into it briefly. Um, if, if if the founder overhears this podcast, he'll kill me, because he doesn't like to compare us to surveys, but we're a new take on survey methodology that uses behavioral science principles to get better data and better insights. I like to start with that, because everyone knows what a survey is. I think describing in other terms becomes a little more eclectic and hard to figure out what it is that we do. Uh, but we track what people believe, how that belief changes over time, um, what segment of the population, if you're doing a target audience analysis, is most susceptible to having their beliefs changed, and which ones are least susceptible. If you if you work in marketing or if you work in information operations, you have the same goal, which is to change what the public believes about what you're messaging into them, um, and then the fourth thing that we surface are the, the triggers, the emotional triggers, the nudges. What are the topics that have a um, particularly high emotional relevance to a target audience that can shape how they feel about it? Uh, dual use technology, it's been around for three years. Um, actually founder, found, found the founder uh, in the deaf community and, and some of his claims sounded outlandish to me. And I'm just kind of a curious person. And and so I jumped on a call and was like, I don't know what you're up to. This sounds like nonsense. And then he walked me through it. And then I realized like, wow, actually, I think this is next generation influence technology. And kind of our vision statement that I cobbled together, which I think is pretty important is, and I I don't have it in front of me, so I'm gonna butcher this, but it's something like to, to maximize the benefits and mitigate the risks of our society's transition from the information age to the influence age. I think uh, as humanity went through, you know, the, the Renaissance and, and the scientific process, the Industrial Revolution. Nowadays, tech is so ubiquitous. We're like, yes, we've conquered it. Like, there's no more irrational beliefs anywhere. We're all governed by logic and reason, and there's nothing to worry about. And if you look at, you know, the the, the weird QAnon craze, the storming of the Capitol, modern propaganda efforts. Man, we we are as a species as susceptible to emotional messaging as we ever have been because that's how humans are made up so as the cognitive sciences advance psychology neurology you know other behavioral science disciplines as those advance and as governments learn how to leverage that ongoing scientific research um, we still have a lot of work to do as a society to learn how to use influence uh, for good and to mitigate really the inherent dangers. And so that was the appeal to me. It's fun in the private sector to get better returns for our clients when it comes to marketing campaigns and validating them. And it's exciting to work on the government side of things and say, like, how do we rebuff propaganda campaigns and how do we um, create messaging that has maximum impact for for our values and our needs as, as a society?
0: Yeah. Probably for a longer conversation, but, you know, both of us being humanities majors, I would think that you and I might share the same concern about a future where everyone's constantly being manipulated in their opinions. Certainly, we've had industries of marketing and lobbying and and everything for, for a long, long time. But ideally, we educate the imagination early in a broad sense and allow people to become good thinkers and discerning. And these types of tools are used for good, right? Because they could be used either way.
1: Yeah, 100% agree. And then sometimes people, you know, they, they, they worry. They're like, that sounds like black mirror stuff. How can you work in such an industry? And it's like, it's like, it's only, it influence is only a bad thing if it's used for bad aims. It can be like the most ethical thing you can do. Like who doesn't want to reduce, Or who doesn't want to improve smoking cessation in the U.S.? You know, who doesn't want to improve public health health outcomes? Uh, Look at how many folks vote in the U.S. Who doesn't want to improve civic engagement? Who doesn't have goals in their own life that they struggle to achieve? We all crave to be influenced, so long as that influence is in alignment with um, our goals and our values. And if it is, there's nothing better you can do. And so I think it's important to tell people that, like, Can it be used for ill? Sure it can. Anything can be used for ill. Can it be used for tremendous good? Absolutely. And lastly, I would argue organizations like the government that have such an important mission, if they neglect to engage with effective influence campaigns, that's unethical, because you have such an important outcome and you're not even considering ways you can make it successful on the other side. Who are you shortchanging? Who's missing out? um and you know i try to stay out of politics whether left or right i try to be politically homeless but if you if you're adopting um a more progressive stance and you want more effective government engagement to help the people struggling most at the bottom that's the best argument for influence campaigns because you want to get people off the streets you want to improve economic outcomes so on and so forth and so i think people uh people are in the right to be a little bit spooked about the black mirror type stuff but um, the other side of the conversation is just important where you can improve civil society outcomes just as
0: much. I, I personally love Black Mirror. My dream job is to be a guest writer uh, for that show. So, uh,
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm you'd be perfect for, for it.
0: Yeah, the post apocalyptic stuff. I love that. So, uh, <laughs> last question What is something that you've read or you've listened to that you would recommend to your friends or colleagues as, hey, this is really good stuff? or maybe there's a habit that you've kind of adopted over the years that you recommend to people. What's something that you like to share?
1: Uh, can I give you two answers? Absolutely. There's a really interesting guy named Ramit Sethi, S E T H. Yeah. I like him. Yeah. I yeah, will he's, teach you to be rich. Yeah. yeah, He's got a really good uh, course on uh, getting your dream job. And he teaches so many principles that are so counterintuitive to veterans that are so necessary. Um, I don't have time to go into the details of it. I really loved about 70% of his course, disagreed about 30% of it, but that's a pretty good number. Um, the one take, if I could put his, all of his teachings into one sentence, it would be this great advice I heard that I see a lot of veterans struggling with that I struggled with when I got out, um, which is when you're talking to somebody, when you're transitioning in your career and you're looking for advice and guidance. Um, I heard this from someone and I, I, I can never forget it because it's such good advice. And it was from this guy who worked in venture capital. Uh, he was a veteran himself, and he said, "Before you ask me a question, I just want to tell you this. I promise, like this is my generous promise to you. I promise I will spend as much time putting thought into my answer as you put into formulating your question." And what he meant, what he meant was, if you ask a question and you haven't even done five minutes worth of research, and people say, "What should I do when I get out?" You'll get an answer like, "Ah, find a good job." If you formulate a question that's like, hey, I have a question for you. I'm really trying to figure out if I belong in early or late stage, B2B or B2C. I think the dynamics in B2B are a little bit more obscure but more interesting and have more potential for growth. I think B2C is closer to the consumer. So you have more intimacy with people's real wants and needs. Early stage seems higher risk, but more opportunity to have an impact later stage seems more opportunity to find a place to plug in immediately with less you know if you do your research and then you find like a really targeted question you will impress the hell out of anybody who you're seeking advice from to be a mentor and so um i advise transitioning veterans because you have all this inbuilt structure in the navy you know i could just knock on my captain's door i could just knock on a department head's door you have so ready access to people you kind of forget. That in the private sector, it's, it, their time is more valued and it's valued in a different way. So you'll really impress people if you do a little bit of research upfront. The second thing I would advise people, honestly, this is a little bit obscure, but would be to learn a little bit about Carl Jung. He was a protege of Sigmund Freud's and consider going to therapy either in union analysis or via other modalities. If you step away from the mental health dichotomy of like, either I'm depressed and anxious or I'm normal, And say like, okay, it's this spectrum where there's some, you know, there's some, pop, you know, the population, there's going to be an average level mental health of somebody. um, But you can always get better and get further along in achieving your potential. And I've certainly had my challenges from a mental health perspective. But I also think, especially people working in national security, like as individuals, when you go to bed at night, you're brushing your teeth and it's quiet. I think we all have this like longing to achieve our potential, whatever that looks like. And, um, what Carl Jung brings to the discussion is connecting with the power of narrative and your subconscious, um, and dream analysis, like dream analysis is probably as far as you can get from what most people in national security, like talk about, we want metrics, we want spreadsheets, we want computers, we want logic and reason. You know, we don't talk about emotion. We don't talk about storytelling, but, um, we're all storytelling creatures and um, we're driven by narratives. And I think everybody, most people get into national security when they first start their career, it's because they believe in the mission. And then if you get carried away by the pressures of the bureaucracy, which is easy to do, you can get, you know, you can, you can see your whole life as spreadsheets and email and moving up the ladder and so forth. But I think to connect with the deepest human longings and, and, and figuring out where you belong and, finding your own path, you know, Carl Jung, one of his concepts is called individuation, which is a terribly simple concept. It's just growing as an individual, but I think it's such a powerful concept um, that we've lost touch with within the context of mythology and storytelling um, that it really can impact your mental health in a positive way. And even if you're mostly happy, it'll help you find new ways to look at your own life where you belong in your next career step next in your personal life, whatever the case may be. And if it's another modality, cognitive behavioral therapy is another, another approach. Even some of the more logical approaches for mental health there absolutely are not applicable in the workplace. One is, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the exercise, but there's an exercise in cognitive behavioral therapy where you create two evidence columns. It's like applying the scientific method to your own, uh, to your own beliefs every day. You say, I believe this is the case. Like, for example, I believe there's no way I can get a promotion. Then you list all the evidence that supports it and then all the evidence that refutes it, giving both sides of the argument a voice. And oftentimes you glean a new insight and you're like, okay, I can question my assumption here and this opens up new opportunity. And so I think mental health is always hard to talk about. Human performance is challenging to talk about, but if you give yourself the grace to see it as a spectrum, we all have infinite potential. I think, um, I don't believe in magic per se, but on the other hand, I think there's phenomena we do not yet understand that is completely, uh, by every measure seems like magic. And we all have mat- this magic inside of us. And if you don't take time to get to know yourself, and, uh, if you don't step away from the pressures of the external world, to realize kind of like all the amazing things you have going on inside of you, then you're missing out on opportunities there. And So as much as external books and podcasts are awesome for professional development, so too is finding the hidden magic inside yourself that you may have lost along the way.
0: So that I mean that's great advice. What's since you kind of touch on it for those who are either transitioning veterans and dealing with their own mental health challenges or others that have never, you know, served in uniform but are going through depression and different things, can you share like maybe a word of encouragement?
1: Yeah, uh, it, along any particular line
0: or just overall? I mean, just coming from your own personal experience, you don't have to get into details, but I think it's always helpful to kind of close on that kind of note if uh, beyond advice, maybe there's something else that you have, have to offer.
1: Sure, well, I'll start by saying, so at the Deaf event in 2014, I gave a very brief five-minute talk. Ben Coleman actually invited me. Um, I've lost touch with them, I need to reconnect. Uh, invited me there was a series of five minute slots invited me to give a talk and it's on it's on youtube you can look it up right now it's uh one of these things that i always want to delete off youtube because it's so raw it's like god i don't really want people to see that side of me (laughs) but i share my own struggles with extraordinary anxiety in the navy and then um i know there was feedback after death on paper you just felt what was good and bad And I think informally, the numbers were looking like my talk was getting close to being the most interesting talk of deaf. I I was like, there's no possible way. I was like, I totally bombed. Nobody was interested in what I had to say. But when you, uh, the way that I wrote my speech for that, and it was just five minutes. I was just one of these small little speakers. The way I wrote it was, um, I had a pen and paper and I kept writing things because it was really cool. I mean, Ben deserves a lot of credit for his mindset. He's like, talk about whatever you want. I don't care. And I was like, that's all. I need some help here. <laughs> He's like, no, you don't. Like, just pick something. So I brainstormed different ideas and things I could talk about. And I was like, I'm not going to say something impactful until I feel uncomfortable about it. So I scrapped a bunch of ideas and I got, cl- I got closer to things that were uncomfortable. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's it. But I think when you fully commit to discomfort, and ironically, this kind of applies to fitness. When you fully embrace discomfort, you're like, okay like I'm doing it. Then a bunch of new ideas sort of poured out from somewhere deep inside of me and informed that talk that I gave. And, uh, you know, you go, you go back and and listen to my talk. And there's like, there's a few times where the audience was laughing and I don't really think of myself as a funny person. I'm kind of like known to be like a little bit too serious (laughs) sometimes. Um, so the encouragement that I would give
0: is like, It sucks to be
1: in the thick of depression or anxiety, but that's where the gold is to be found. You don't make diamonds unless you compress coal to an extremely high degree. And the scary truth that we all have to admit is like, there's no guarantee you'll find diamonds, but like, God dang, if you're under a lot of pressure, whether it's from others or yourself and you're in the darkness, know that the probability is tremendously high that diamonds are just around the corner so i would encourage people like don't give up and um, the sign you know if you're if you're struggling it means you're engaged with something that's real and it's important a lot of people who don't struggle don't struggle because they're in denial of of something and so if you're wrestling with if you're wrestling with something difficult you deserve credit because you're not running from it and by engaging with it it's extremely likely that the diamond is to be found right around the corner and Through hell or high water, do whatever it takes, over, under, through, around. Find the help you need, because um, the statistical probability of any of us being born into this amazing life is so close to zero, you can't even calculate it. If you just think of the basics of biology and how conception works, man. So the fact that we're here with this gift of life, you know, I think we were all put here for a reason. And though you may not know what it is today, what a terrible tragedy it would be if something happened where you where you didn't do everything, where you didn't do everything you could to try to figure out what it is. So hang in there, don't give up, go to therapy, um, stay away from toxic people, you know, some good advice I heard is be careful who you share your bad news with, and be careful who you share your good news with. Uh, Only keep people close to you that will build you up when you share the bad news and will celebrate your wins when you share the good news. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty passionate about mental health and, and all that. So I'm happy to chat with any of your listeners if anyone's in the thick of it, man, I, I've been there and I, I've um, gone through an extraordinary amount of therapy to try to find my way and I wouldn't take back a second of it because um, I think it has helped me find the real gifts that I have to offer the world and had some pretty rad success stories that I didn't get to today on the podcast, but maybe some other time.
0: Yeah, we could have part two. I mean, everything you're talking about reminds me of a conversation I had with my son yesterday where we realized in the course of our conversation that the word struggled sounds very similar to struck gold mm-hmm. so struck gold and struggled and in order to, to str- strike gold oftentimes you have to struggle to get there and sometimes realizing that in the struggle that you know there's gold you know even in the struggle so yeah thanks for that word of encouragement that's a great yeah. note to close on
1: yeah and i'll drop i'll drop two can I drop two more quick things yeah for any listener who's like interested the first thing i'll say there's a lot of discussion in the world about the need for psychological safety i totally agree i have no counter argument but a message that's missing is sometimes you can't control your environment and you'll be in a shitty excuse me you'll be in a dark place and so there is a concurrent need for psychological courage moral courage so anyone struggling who, who knows the right thing to do but it's hard i would say keep pushing the world needs that courage from you and it's how you're going to bring brightness into the world and the second from the from a pharmaceutical standpoint is I, have, I actually saw a provider for ketamine and that's a little bit more personal than I normally get but it's it's important there's there's a uh, world of there's a world of pharmaceuticals
0: that
1: is slowly entering the scene of mental health and you have to approach it with discernment and great caution but ketamine is typically an anesthetic but it's got mental health applications and that was quite life-changing for me so if anyone is really deep in the darkness and they're getting pretty desperate, I would encourage research into that. The emerging body of research, the VA actually has done a ton of research on it for help with um, PTSD and other conditions. And it's not a cure-all, it doesn't help everybody, but the people it does help, it tends to help pretty profoundly. So um, it's, a, it's a repurposed use case for an anesthetic. They usually use in emergency rooms and that was pretty transformational for me too.
0: Okay,
1: awesome. Well, thanks for that. And uh, we'll stay in touch, Adam. Yeah, That's great work. Yeah. This has been great. Props for the great podcast, man. I just, I discovered, you know, prepping for this call. I listened to your first episode this morning and charged through two and a half of them all morning. So, you do a great job. All
0: right, thanks a lot. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster podcast. Get show notes and more at grandplaster.com.